When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with poet, artist, and novelist Rachel Eliza Griffiths, author of Promise. I think each of us has kind of experienced the sensation of being in our own bodies and sensing the scale of the world around us and that currency of timelessness, of time passing, time lived. And time to come. We'll be back with Rachel Eliza Griffiths after these essential words. So this past June marked the 10th anniversary of First Draft. The first episode aired on June 10th, 2013. And if the person I am today told my younger self that I'd be nearly 450 episodes deep into this show in 10 years, I would have laughed at my future self. But alas, here we are. And how did we get here? at what I would estimate is 9,000 hours of work I've put into this podcast. That's reading, researching, interviewing, editing, arranging the guests. I am the entire staff. And I guess the answer is, how did we get to 9,000 hours? Is a mixture of insanity and blind but ferocious dedication to sharing conversations about craft and literature. This isn't AI, folks. This is weekends where I sit and read and so many things in my life that get fully ignored for this endeavor. And I honestly consider it a gift to the world. It's a place where my passion and I hope some amount of finesse and skill marry together to offer this conversation you're about to hear directly to you in the intimate way that audio works. And if you get anything out of this episode or the hundreds that came before, or hopefully the hundreds that will come next, I am asking you in the most honest and authentic way I know how to please support this show. While I love making it and talking to authors and the entire endeavor fills me up, it does not pay the bills. And if we want to support art in this world and conversations about art and lift the curtain up and really talk about how art gets made, well, your support will help keep this show alive. It's here today because of listeners who became supporters. And that's the truth. 
So I'm asking you to bolster this rich dialogue, this juicy material with financial support. It's not easy to do, but sticking with this for 10 years wasn't easy to do either. And it's not going to be easy in the future. But if nothing else, it's reliable and consistent. With every episode, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without your support. Please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member to the First Draft community. You can support the show today at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate on a monthly or annual level. As a thank you to my patrons, you receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and writing tips from my guests. Again, you can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned. At the end of the interview, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for your listening support. And thank you for being here with me today, right here in this moment. And on to the 400-something episode. My guest today is poet, multimedia artist, and novelist Rachel Eliza Griffiths. Her literary and visual work has been widely published in magazines, journals, and anthologies, including The New Yorker, The Paris Review, Poets and Writers, and Best American Poetry, among others. Some of her poetry collections include Miracle Arrhythmia, Mule and Pear, Seeing the Body, and Lighting the Shadow. Her extensive video project, P.O.P., Poets on Poetry, an intimate series of micro-interviews, gathers nearly 100 contemporary poets in conversation and is featured online by the Academy of American Poets. Her novel Promise tells the story of two black sisters, Ezra and Cynthia Kindred, who grow up in Salt Point, Maine in 1957 in a loving home with close family friends and neighbors, the Junkets, who are the only other black family in town. As the girls hit adolescence, their white neighbors, including Ezra's best friend Ruby, start to see their maturing bodies and minds in a different way. As the news from distant parts of the country relays calls for freedom, equality, and justice for black Americans, the white villagers of Salt Point begin to view the kindreds and the junkets as threats to their way of life. Amid escalating violence, prejudice, and fear, Bold Ezra and watchful Cynthia must contend with the brutality of the world around them and absorb the love of their family to survive their entrance into young womanhood and a changing America. We began the discussion with me asking Rachel Eliza Griffiths this question. This is a book that made me feel. And I don't know, like sometimes maybe you close a book and it makes you think, which I'm not saying it didn't make me think because it absolutely did. But like what I'm left with is how I feel. And I'm curious about your reaction to that. I feel the ideal book for me is um, an experience where you come away with with both of those parts, you know, that you're you're thinking, but you're definitely feeling like there's a visceral 
kind of intimacy with the work. So I remember this moment where I was out in Santa Fe and Joy Harjo was there giving a conversation um, about writing. And she spoke about the heart and the mind. And she said this remarkable thing of kind of the artist goes into a room and allows the heart to kind of fling pains and rage and feelings and things on the wall and just completely like wreck and shatter the room. And then the job of the mind is to come in afterwards and, you know, um, encapsulate that in language. And so I feel like for me with promise, I never wanted the mind and heart to be separated from each other. And so um, I love smart, funny books where it's witty and it's fun, but I feel like the books that you reach for to kind of save you, the feeling part can't be you know, disentangled from that. I think we have so much pressure to to be smart all the time for everybody. And we get uncomfortable when we say the word hard, like this book made me feel something. It sounds so sentimental, you know, and people never ever, particularly writers, want the S word near their, their work. And I don't want it either, but it's okay to feel something after coming through a book is kind of how I would, you know, think of it this morning anyway. How do you as an artist, and I'm curious if uh, visual arts comes into that because I know you're a visual artist and a poet as well as a writer, but how, because you had that experience listening to Joy say that and because it really resonates with your experience of the world and maybe making art, how do you then start a project knowing that that's what's in mind because there's also just the creative process which in some ways maybe we can't control I feel comfortable when I you know when things feel uncontrolled at first and I think it's a very rich space to kind of look at different elements that are happening different things that are happening internally with you and within you and to to kind of really ask your question like what's at stake here for me writing this work you know um, there has to be for me some risk and some daring and some tension. And again, that word discomfort, why does this matter to me? And what would happen to me as an artist if I chose not to or didn't feel I could write something? I think when I, you know, am beginning a project, this feeling of being compelled to do it and that feeling accumulates in a way where I know I don't have a choice. One of my very favorite words is intuition. And I think that is a huge word for me and my process as a visual artist, as a writer. The space of intuition contains, I think, for me, lyricism, editing, revision. It's all there in the the gut. And I think I write from the place of my guts, kind of the place of the body. And I think for my visual art, particularly, um, which is so oftentimes centers my own body in the work, self-portraitures or figures, then the body becomes this language and it is often nonverbal. And at the same time, you know, you're telling a story. Storytelling is happening through the camera which is in some way the language and the editor and kind of the eye. But I like when things, I don't know everything at the beginning. Otherwise, I wouldn't be interested in it. No, I wouldn't want to restrain myself from discovery. 
And I think, you know, when things are at stake and at risk for you, there's such a spectrum of discovery and failure and clarity that all comes together that I think is really profound for me. So what was the, I guess, I mean, there's so many themes in this book that we can talk about, but I'm curious, what was the kernel that was nagging at you when we talk about this story? Basically, this in many ways is a coming of age story between two sisters named Cynthia, who is the younger one, she's 13, and Ezra, who's 15, living in Salt Point, Maine, with their parents. And they go to a school where their dad is a teacher, and they are one of two black families in this all-white town. And it's 1957, and civil rights are starting to flare, and empowerment, I think, is starting to happen for black communities all across America. And there's also some reckoning within the family and the the family that they're friends with in terms of how they approach the macro and microaggressions that come their way. And amidst all this is really Cynthia's journey of watching the racism unfold and deepening her understanding of how connected she is to her own family and ancestors. You know, I think one of the most important aspects of the book when I'm thinking, you know, macro, micro, and different things like that. This notion of, you know, thematically of the idea of a promise, which sounds a little bit woo-woo, like, okay, this word promise. But I think looking back recently, as I've been doing for a different project in like my old journals and diaries and things like that, as a child and, and going forth, I was very fascinated and haunted by the notion of you know, literally this, like to give one's word, you know, to make a promise. And the word kind of surfaces a lot in my consciousness and in my mind around me. And I think there's something to be said that is universal, um, which transcends the story of Cynthia and Ezra is this idea of that, you know, when we're young, right, we're coming of age, we're young, but our parents, our teachers, The world promises us um, a kind of humanity or a freedom or a safety, security, promising to take care of children, promising to help them learn how to be in the world. If they're in college, promising, you know, job security or different things. And, you know, then the more um, even profound thing of like promising love and honesty and truth and justice and these different things that happen and the moments particularly that can be shattering, you know, between parents and children when that all kind of falls apart. And the moments in your life where promises are made to you and are broken, are there's a greater system at work and, you know, your parents may have promised you things, but you realize as you're coming of age that they can't keep those promises to you because the world is going to insert its own sense of of beauty and terror and justice upon you. And you see suddenly your parents as children too, or as vulnerable beings who are making their best effort to offer you some kind of life or or map to, to scale the very kind of 
madness and chaos and and beauty, you know, of the world. And um, the also very painful moments where you make a promise to yourself or to someone else and you can't keep it, even though your intention might be otherwise, you know, things happen or things shift um, inside you and this idea of a promise, right? And in the book, um, you mentioned the sisters, you know, in the book, there's a moment where Ezra, um, who is the elder sister, you know, tells Cynthia, you know, not to love her pain. And she asks her, you know, please don't love your pain and that the world promises us harm and there's nothing to do about that. But promise me, you'll have the nerve to love your life. And, you know, it's a lot of wisdom for a 15 year old. But that there is an understanding that in spite of suffering and the harder things, there is still wonder and defiance and joy and just the kind of um, splendor of the ordinary world that is to be savored. And I think the gray area of this word promise, it's so, I promise to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. It, it, it kind of comes and attaches itself so intimately to each of us in our lives and it's always shifting and changing and so I feel like books I love I return to this word and I'm never the same in the word and what it means to me is constantly changing and I think that in the actual novel each of the characters is struggling and and battling with promises that they have made to themselves or that they are grappling with the dissonance of promises that fail them or make things dangerous for them. And so there's a real sense of intimacy that is happening for each character in terms of, you know, how they also orbit their desires. Right? And I think that is also something in the book, this kind of idea of desire and idea of fear and how closely they can be to each other. And that that is also a very wild and strange moment when you're coming of age of what do I want? I can have anything because I'm young. I can do anything. And then also realizing that you are so vulnerable and things are so raw. You're leaving your youth and there are a lot of expectations and pressure placed upon you that feel really almost overwhelming. And at the same time, there's a exhilaration of anything might be possible. However, um, in Promise, if it's 1957 and you're a young Black girl and you um, are thinking about what is possible for you, that's a different kind of conversation and a different kind of interrogation of the world that has been assembled to meet you um, as you step into this new space of no longer being a child in a certain kind of way. So I would say, you know, Mitzi, that that might be some of the things when I think about the promise and the story that are really central to what fascinated me and compelled me to write it. So the book opens with these sisters. Again, um, Cynthia is 13 and Ezra is 15. And Ezra has a best friend named Ruby who's white and poor. And they go off into the woods and they are doing this sort of secret, I wouldn't necessarily call it a ritual, but like a secret act where they want to see 
at least, well, Cynthia's kind of along for the ride. She doesn't know what she's getting into, but Ezra and Ruby have, have had their periods this summer and they wanted to basically like look at each other's private parts and do this in the woods. And Cynthia feels a lot of guilt because she feels like her parents would not approve of this, but it's a very both tangible and metaphorical way to open to look at, are we different as humans? And what happens in the woods is that a fight ensues between Ezra and Ruby about the very foundation of who they are and the difference between them and their color. And it it sort of leads into the whole rest of the book. So I was curious about choosing this sort of activity to open the book. I think of a lot of um, different kind of weird games sometimes that you see children engage in um, and that you yourself as a child engaged in that you would come up with these, you know, dares or games or adventures or different things um, that, you know, sometimes they seem very innocent. And then other times, you know, like, we're not supposed to be doing this, which is a lot of the intrigue and excitement about doing it. Or should we have done this? Maybe this wasn't the best thing to do. Um, And, you know, for these girls, they know that they are explicitly not supposed to be doing this. And so, um, you know, I kind of had an image of this kind of strange star um, when I was working on different sections of the book, this star and what was it? And it's this weird shape and kind of like, what is going on with this kind of star shaped? If you're looking down on these, these girls legs and they're, they're all spread and they make this kind of strange shape and what are they doing? Um, what is this game? And that, um, these girls have obviously seen different things that boys their age do and, and don't seem to get in trouble. And it's perfectly fine for boys to have, you know, games where their their bodies are part of the adventure or what whatever it is. And so they're also kind of thinking that they've arrived at a point where, as you mentioned, Ruby and Ezra have had their their periods and their mothers or people around them, they've all been told that, you know, this is the mark of becoming a woman and that everything is going to change. And, you know, now that you've had your period, you know, you can have children, there's all these dangers now, and the world seems to kind of hook their talents into this fact that um, the body is completely altered by this, this biological thing happening. And you're right, you know, Cynthia has no idea when she decides to follow her sister on this day before school begins that, that this is the game of, of the day. And I feel as though the girls, you know, they go up to the bluffs, these bluffs, and they're high up and they're in this very physical, wild, feral type of space um, where they give themselves permission and authority to do whatever they want. There's no grownups around. And so they're really after like, what's the truth here about this thing that our bodies are different because we're black and white or because we've had our cycles, we can't be girls anymore. Like, what are we doing here? And it was a challenging scene to write, to really kind of strike a balance between the physical embodiment of what that would have felt like, the breathlessness of that, the kind of excitement and giddiness and curiosity, um, and at the same time, a wiser, um, more knowing pair of eyes looking at them 
doing this and being able to come away and all of these different kinds of readings that could be projected on them. But, you know, they kind of sit up after they look at each other in this very explicit way um, at their private parts and are kind of like, huh, you know, it kind of looks the same, but it's not the same. Um, we're feeling almost the weight of the world telling us we've done this thing that we're not supposed to do. And that even each of the girls has a sense of what the world allows them to do and believe about the body they have um, versus how you know dissonant it might feel in and of themselves to, to have um, a relationship with that body, particularly their vaginas and how they are looking at this place, which they will sadly, you know, be in some ways, um, and they don't really know it yet, defined by this kind of gendering that happens. And so um, Cynthia, who has not had her menstrual cycle yet, has not had her period, is almost a witness to this, and she participates, but she is also kind of wise in a way to say, what, what are we doing here? Um, what is the purpose of this? And I think a fight erupts because the girls kind of see that there isn't a difference. And at the same time, everything is different. And just by the act of doing this, um, a certain kind of shame or self-knowing or self-consciousness arrives and kind of descends on them. And they're suddenly looking at each other differently. And, um, you know, I think there is... A particular moment that feels very painful where I know when I was younger growing up, um, I had, um, you know, a very diverse number of childhood friends and things from all walks of life. And once I got to a certain age and school and things, I really noticed that racially there seemed to be a kind of splitting away where suddenly um, white children, right, girls and boys that I played with, there seemed to be a difference where my parents would feel like, you know, you're getting older now, you know, you all can't play the same way or, or that even in school, there would be this grouping of like, you know, the black children are all together socially, but um, there would be almost a pushback to try to keep being having friendships with children from other races. And it seems very, um, strange but it's it's kind of bewildering and confusing when you're a child where when you're younger you're you just have your friends you have your friendships and and certain things start to encroach upon that space of showing that there's this distinction or there's this difference um and as you're getting closer and closer to adolescence and things you start to feel that there are the moments where you're asked about your hair or your teachers are starting to um, starting to, or have already maybe isolated you in a different way or said different things to you, microaggressions or very blatant things um, to kind of show you that you are not being included with the white students that are around you or the white children around you, or you have moments sometimes which would happen to me if I went into the mall or stores with white friends owners would look at me different or might be following me around the store. And I'm suddenly thinking, huh, like, why am I being treated like I'm expected to be the thief or that I'm going to do something, I'm the troublemaker or something. And of course, 
I was the nerdiest, most awkward, sensitive child you can imagine. But it would be strange and think, oh, it's because I'm I'm brown or or what? Or being the kid in the class and knowing all the answers and raising your hand and realizing, you know, you're not being called on in some way because of your your race or your color or prejudices that um are in the space of the learning space of the classroom. And this fascinates me. And, you know, it, it remains a, a contemporary issue as much as like me growing up in the 80s or something, um, that this space of um, self-perception that these girls kind of train themselves on and then how they appear to each other um, and how that fractures their relationship. And I think it's a very painful thing that happens to us in different ways. Um, Some of us, you know, the layers and the sophistication of how heartbreaking this is, um, is very startling to me. And I felt I wanted that bewilderment and exhilaration, but also shame and tension to, to be present in this act that the girls that they do up in the woods and that kind of in some way shadows them through the rest of the story. What does it mean to look at yourself literally? And with that knowledge, you know, how are you confronting the world um, and kind of also giving yourself permission if you can or authority to, to claim ownership of your body in all of its different ways, because the world is already descending by the time you're 13 14, 15-year-old girl to kind of claim you and engulf you in all of its, you know, psychological and political warfare. So I think these are some of the things I was thinking about in that scene that that come to the girls. I think there's so much in the book. I mean, some of it are literal references, and there's a lot about what the world gives you. And I think, like, what the world gives you as a black female, having a black body is very different than what the world gives Ruby, even though there's some twists in ter- terms of how her her life turned out. But I mm-hmm. think, um, you know, in that what you quoted earlier, I had written it down because it, in a lot of ways it encapsulated the book for me where um, I think it, Ezra does say to her sister, don't love your pain. This world promises us harm and there's nothing you can do about it except to have the nerve to love your life. And I felt like a theme throughout was what the world is handing you and how even in the deepest pain, like you can find your ecstasy, like you can find your private joy, you can find your private beauty. And that's where the wealth lies. Yes. I mean, that, you know, for me sitting here speaking with you and being in this wondrous conversation with you, that need, um, and it's the survival, it's you living and being alive, the need to unearth what matters for you, what's healthy for you, what's balancing, what's wondrous, what excites you, um, what astonishes you is critical to you surviving. Um, and oftentimes surviving trauma and grief and um, hardship. And what is also hard is to discover those things 
and to preserve those things, right? Because they're never static, they're never fixed. You're always changing and growing too. Is is also requires a kind of mindfulness and vigilance and work. And so um, it is a unrelenting and formidable task to hold on to that need to give that to yourself in spite of and because of the world, because that also isn't a passive kind of, here's the arrival of the tools and things I need to have a full life. The terms and parameters of that are always shifting um, in some way internally, of course, but also in reaction to the times in which one lives. And certainly in the times in which we live, um, you know, the markers are always moving. You know, it's like Charlie Brown trying to kick the football, you know, and it's just moving and moving and moving. But also if you are a black woman and you are um, trying to center yourself and ground yourself and root yourself and do that work of, of discovery and becoming who you are, Will the pressures and, and work around you um, is so uh, intense um, that the effort and work that you have to do is going to be two or three or four times uh, more, um, you know, heavier or intense than others per se. And it can be distraction where you can focus so much on trying to to push back and push back just so you can breathe that, you know, it's hard not to surrender. It's hard not to give up um, and that you're relying on, you know, what your inner life asks of, of you and needs of you. But you also need reflection and affirmation and courage from the rest of the world to walk next to you and um, to see you and to want to hear you so that you don't silence yourself um, and that you go forward with a kind of incandescence in you and know that that too is dangerous for you, but you need it. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I felt like there was also kind of baked into your book was this idea of simultaneity and timelessness where 
there are moments when Cynthia can see or feel all those who came before her, like really specifically, of course, her like direct lineage, like her great grandfather and great grandmother and great great grandfather and those whose stories are still generally knowable. I mean, we know the bigger story, which is there are references to like the bodies at the bottom of the Atlantic that are turned into seashells that are also like the heritage here and part of the the legacy of their lives. But also the things that she can see beyond the world that she's living in tangibly. And also this Mm -hmm. idea of not only what came before her, but also what might come after and just wanted to ask you about this this element i think each of us has kind of experienced the sensation of being in our own bodies and sensing the scale of the world around us and that currency of timelessness of time passing time lived and time to come and i think it is one of the kind of really ecstasies of being human in certain kind of way, but also anguish because being aware of your own mortality and how brief it is, um, is also dissonant to the time you feel that you're in your body or the memories you start to gather and the sense of the past and how, um, you know, vast and far reaching that is. And that that could be um, likely as as much the future and that it's impossible for you in in a certain kind of way to ground yourself to any of that. Um, And yet that's where you are and that's where you find yourself. And I think it's, you know, uh, you know, I I love this um, very, very often quoted idea of Faulkner's about the past not being past. and that it's also present. And I I felt that, and I feel that as a writer all the time, I would say for myself of, you know, thinking of someone like Baldwin saying, you know, as a writer, you know, or as a reader or a person of being in the world. And as you begin to write, you realize you're never alone. And, um, and I felt that for myself working on this book that I felt that I was standing on the shoulders and in conversation in a village, um, in a kind of constellation um, not only with writers and artists and and beings um, and readers before me, but those who will come after me um, and who are here now, who have arrived now. And that, um, you know, it's that sensation when you're standing on the shore and there's just this ocean and, you know, there is no ending or entrance of it, but that you are there and you are connected to it and you are made from it in a way. And yet it's played there for you and for everyone. Um, and I feel as though um, so many times as a child, this feeling would kind of come upon me like a visitation and it would really distress me and freak me out because I felt that I could be lost and um, carried away or taken away. And over many, many years, and as long as I'm here, this kind of peace that can also be found in it and this kind of joy and humor and um, 
appreciation for this uh, sensation of being connected. And, and for me in particular with the book and, and thinking about Black imagination and Black tradition is the presence of ancestors, um, the feeling that they are near and that they are listening um, and that, um, you know, this kind of generative, sustaining energy of them being nearby or present or inside is a way or a map or a means to help one understand oneself and also to be connected to a larger universe. Can you tell me about Choosing Maine? Yes. Um, Choosing Maine, uh, there are a number of factors. I'm a very kind of natural world nature person where nature is always restorative and interesting and um, a place for the mind and body to really um, be something that is beyond my kind of other brain. Um, Maine for me, uh, for this novel, is I wanted to take this story away from the South and then kind of what we formed in our minds as the American South. Um, I felt as though taking um, promise in the story of this family far to the North gave me a lot of oxygen and um, space as a writer to explore the relationships and um, identities of the characters versus going um, south to Mississippi or Alabama or Georgia and having um, the story take place there. I feel sometimes as readers and just even, you know, thinking about films and songs and movies about the South, we have come um, in a dangerous way to be too easy and reckless with that. I also think there are a lot of really beautiful living, uh, dead and living writers who know the South because they're from the South. You know, I was born in Washington, D.C. and raised between Washington and Wilmington, Delaware. So um, I'm more of a mid-Atlantic writer. You know, I'm coming from a place where the Mason and Dixon line goes through Delaware. And so there's this very um, interesting charge space of North and South within Delaware. I also wanted to challenge the idea that, um, you know, this this conception that when you were in the north as a black person, if you could just get north, if you could get north, there would almost be this kind of mecca or easiness or difference than you know being down in the south where the racism is so direct and violent and charged that um, you know it almost is impossible to live or to be safe. I wanted to bring that far north because obviously. Um, racism and racial hatred, particularly in 1950s when I'm writing this book, um, setting it in that time is happening there, but it's so isolated, the landscape. Um, it's isolated and it's different in how um, racial tension is happening, I think, you know, is different. And I, I, I'm aware I'm speaking in a very general way, but as a storyteller and a writer, I felt that I wanted to... Um, have the story take place in a way that the reader is drawn north. Um, personally, when I was younger 
you know, I would spend time in New England and going north and being so struck in awe about the beauty of, you know, up by Deer Island and these places and so wild and feral and sparse and really hard geography that's not kind of the lush magnolia and you know bougainvillea and crepe myrtle and things and I would think when I would go there like what would it be like for someone who looks like me to be raised in this kind of environment and I also um just felt you know what would happen to kind of overlay this racial hostility in an environment that is chilling and cold most of promise, you know, there's blizzards, there's snowstorms, the power's going out. There's a real sense of chill that corresponds to what I find to be so chilling and um, cold about race and how it, you know, it, it's extreme. It's it's burning the body, it's burning the psyche, um, it's cauterizing things, and at the same time. The extreme would be extreme cold that um, is life threatening, and I wanted, um, I just wanted that that strangeness and that energy. So I think those are some of the reasons why, um, for me, I always saw the promise as happening far, far north, rather than in the south. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Can you read a passage that influences you or speaks to you as a writer? I am going to read a passage from the very end of Toni Morrison's Jazz. And um, I'm going to just skip around for a little bit, but it's right at the end of jazz. I started out believing that life was made just so the world would have some way to think about itself, but that it had gone awry with humans because flesh pinioned by misery hangs onto it with pleasure, hangs on to wells and a boy's golden hair would just as soon inhale sweet fire caused by a burning girl as hold a maybe yes, maybe no hand. I don't believe that anymore. Something is missing there, something rogue, something else you have to figure in before you can figure it out. But I can't say that aloud. I can't tell anyone that I have been waiting for this all my life and that being chosen to wait is the reason I can. If I were able, I'd say it. Say, make me, remake me. You are free to do it, and I am free to let you, because look, look, look where your hands are now. Do you want to tell me more about why you chose that? I return to this passage so frequently because it seems to me that it is such a private moment for Morrison herself as a writer. And at the same time, I I see her extending and offering herself to this world and to um, the union and 
agonizing agreement we make as writers, but also as just human beings to each other and to the world. And I feel in this passage that comes toward the end of jazz, that there is um, a seeping through or a bleeding through of the author directly into the story, but also like out into the world and that she's risen above, risen above language into this almost defiance of like, I am free to do this and you are free to do that. You know, look, that that thing she says, look, look, you know, and that these, the immediacy it just ends um, the novel, you know, look where your hands are, period, now. And it's a command. And at the same time, it is so intimate. Um, it's so suggestive and evocative. Look where your hands are. It's also an accounting. And then the tactile thing of look at your hands. Where are they now? And then it's so urgent now. I just, I just find it stunning. And um, it affects me every time I come return to it. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed from the first draft or something you really like. I actually am going to read to you. Um, you mentioned it earlier in our conversation. I wanted to just read a passage from the very end of Promise, um, which is very different from various versions of Promise. And when I heard you in our conversation earlier bring it up, I thought of our synergy because I'm like, well, that's that's what I have my mark here to, to read this morning. So I'll just read um, very briefly some of the very end of Promise. Here is the glowing shirt my father once wore over his bones and the education that fit around his ribs like armor. I remember his patience and how he taught me to take my time with every test, every story. I am my father's patience. Here is Mama escaping through the window, her suffering dissolving in the low yellow moonlight of the world, while far away stars blaze like oceans. I am the light and the bones beneath the sea, rising to meet the sky. I remember what those bones believed, the songs inside shells, the children who became coral, pearls, and anchors. Do you see how the hard land glittered around the foundation of the house my mother and my father built for me? Do you remember the blood? I am Theodore, Alma, Calliope. Do you see how my great-grandparents kissed those school children they could not save from their dream? Do you remember our blood? There is a memory so old it has known better than to trust us with its full face. I am in the blood of that, the flare of the firelight my great-grandfather admired before the white men shot him through his eyes. I am the eternity he cradled in his arms as he crossed. I am the smoke hurling from the earth where indigo headstones wait for justice and sublime undisturbed rest. I am but one voice and there are countless dark women who live in the rivers, ashes, moons, and oceans. I remember when they rolled my name against the stars until I expanded. I remember 
what I was before flesh, the blood of unafraid loving, of love and its afterlife. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? It echoes and surges and ebbs for me in this sense of being aware of ancestors and one's time here in the world and what that work might be. Um, work for me in terms of being a creator, a, you know, an artist, a writer, but also the everyday ordinary work of being present in my life to um, the times that we live in. Um, I think in this moment, particularly in the novel for Cynthia, this kind of awareness of a great world, of a profound world, um, kind of really lifting itself up and making itself visible to her as a way to console her or to comfort her um, and to acknowledge the um, kind of plurality of itself of all of these things happening and firing off in the universe at one time she can watch her mother's body be carried out of her grandmother's front yard and in that breath she also has to sing whether she can barely sing or wants to or not she suddenly finds inside herself the song and voice that belongs to her but also belongs to everyone and she is trying to um have the courage and the strength um, and the intelligence and intuition to say that this is what it is. It's everything. And I can't know it, but it is the life force. Where do you write? I write in three different places. I write in New York. I write in Delaware. Um, and if I were to be more explicit, I have a small table in New York where I write. Um, I like to have my dog nearby. Um, I don't know how he feels about that, but I like when he's close. Um, when I write in Delaware, uh, I have a quiet room and there are a lot of trees and um, quiet and light around me. And um, I have an art studio I do mostly visual things there, but sometimes I will write there in, in my art studio um, where things feel like kind of a workshop feeling and it's messy and, you know, there's photographs and paper and all kinds of things around. And so it feels very much like things are being made there. And so I'll write there as well. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I don't really get away from writing, I have to say. I feel well, I think there's the writing of the mind, which is always happening, or the mind is writing. If I'm really kind of at my, you know, holding my journal or something like that, you know, I put that down, but I feel like I'm someone, because I work across multiple genre and medium, you know, even when I'm working on photographs, I'm writing in a way. Um, if I'm watching a film, I'm really mindful of the writing. If I'm listening to music, I'm mindful of the lyrics and language. Um, it's not something I, I want to escape. I mean, you know, I'm very prone to, to binging on Law and Order or something like that, but I don't try to get away from it. I usually maybe will be doing 
some other thing. Like if I'm out in the field and nature or something with my camera and I'm doing that kind of work, I am far away from writing, but I feel its presence there. I don't feel like um, it's such an escape for me that I kind of don't, I don't want it far from me. I don't want to escape from it. If that sounds completely weird and anti-escape, but um, I don't, yeah, it's, it's kind of surrounds me in a, a very um, maddening and frustrating way. I like it. It's very weird. It can get very weird and I like weird. So who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Depending on what stage I'm in with a project um, or piece of writing, I may show it to my agent to um, just see what she might think about it. Um, Sometimes I will show it to my spouse. I really hold on to things for a long time before uh, I'm willing to show them to anyone. Uh, I really like the space of not showing it to anyone and having that go on for a long time until I really feel certain that the project or piece of writing is going into a direction where it might be a book, then I feel it might be good to hear other people in my head um, or hear their responses or what they think about it, or they might ask a question that will send me back to more writing and thinking about it. But I would say between my my agent and my partner, and I, I do have some really, really fantastic friends who are writers, but I tend not to want to burden them um, with reading things of mine because I'm so aware of how necessary and selfish we have to be with time, especially when we have families and work and other obligations on us. I feel shy to ask friends to read things for me, um, although I'm always willing to read things that they're working on. So I think I have to be better about reciprocity in that way. How have you dealt with rejection? Ice cream. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, um, over the years, I mean, there's, there's moments where you, you know, you feel flat out rejected and something you were aiming for wanted doesn't go your way. Um, I, I think I've worked a lot over the years to develop ways to, um, reposition my thinking of what that word means for me. Um, you know, the word no is the word no. Um, however, it can be tempered by things. And a lot of the time I temper it in my own mind of, you know, this wasn't a match or this wasn't a fit, or is it time for me to go back and look at something I'm writing? I tend to just do something else, you know, I'll go read or I'll go spend time with friends or, um, you know, I'll probably go make something else. It, It depends on kind of like every rejection feels so particular to whatever you're getting the rejection from and who is it coming from. And I think that's also something too. If I've given my, my all and done my best to, for something, I'm like, well, I I don't reject what I, what I intended or what I wanted for this. And I don't think um, it's not in an ego way, but a way of being soft with myself so that I could easily veer into a space of I'm so rejected. So I can't write anything. I can't do anything. And now I have to, to stew and fixate on what I don't have, where I'm more prone to think of, well, there's all these things around me that I can do and that are available to me and I have to keep going. And um, for someone who has been writing now for 
several decades, um, you know, it's always a raw feeling, but I, I feel at this point that I, I will take it in stride and kind of shrug my shoulders and think of, you know, something else to go do or just, just say, well, that wasn't for me, or that's not, it's not my time for that, or I'm not sure what happened here, or, oh, I can see what happened here, or, you know, this thing explains that, um, because I actually don't have the the energy to have the energy to disrupt my ecosystem thinking too much. And I, you know, in terms of um, a bigger thing, I'd say, about identity as a Black woman, you know, most of my life, as a young writer or being in the world, um, constantly being rejected just for breathing, constantly being um, overlooked or made to feel unseen or invisible is almost in my DNA, where the work for me is to like go beyond um, other people's rejection or dismissal because I have to live. And so, constantly battling, um, especially when I was younger as a writer, people just being like blanketly, no, no, getting passed over for different things or whatever. You just, you know, have this armor of keep going, um, keep working, um, letting go of things, something you're rejected by something like, let it go, you know, let it go, keep your hand open for whatever might come next, you know? And, um, you know, I don't think I'm as generous to say like, thank you sometimes when I get rejected, but sometimes I'm like, okay, this is information for me. And I don't need to like internalize this and take it too personally, but this is information for me um, for better or for worse, you know. What is your favorite word? This question is so fantastic. The question I will carry for years um, my favorite word today is light. And this word light, um, it's one of my, I would say my greatest hits of favorite words, light is one of, you know, is in the top 10. Um, I don't even know if I need to explain this word, except to just say that, um, you know, my relationship with the word light is, is a state of being, it's a verb, it's an action, it's a it's a call to arms. Um, it's a sensuality. It's an intimacy. So my favorite word today is light. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. I'm so grateful. I'm grateful too. Thank you so much, Missy. It's just been really um, a delight. If you like today's show with Rachel Eliza Griffiths, author of the novel Promise, check out my interview with Keisha Blaine, author of Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America. We talked about the life of civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hamer, writing about difficult material, and why the book also holds messages of self-care. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 420 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. 
Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with James McBride, Ben Fountain, and Jen Shapland. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.